Hey, hey, good morning. <laughs> How's everybody? Great. Good. All right. All right. Yeah, we're doing it. Helen's got the day off. It's a good day. All right. Hey, um, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, this is we're going to spend uh, a lot of our time uh, this morning. And as you're turning there, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in together here. Uh, Father, thanks so much for an opportunity uh, to sit here uh, with my wife and um, just to share the things that you've been uh, working into us this week and really over the course of our, of our lives. Um, I, I pray that this morning, uh, it, in so many ways, would bring you glory, God, and for our body, um, just as James said, uh, Father, that we would grow um, up in truth, um, that we would mature and uh, to a fullness uh, of who you've made us to be. Um, by understanding what your word tells us and uh, how we can live under the covering of its blessing or the covering of your blessing through your word. And so um, this morning, as we uh, just kind of have a conversation together, God, I pray um, that you would use it uh, again for your glory, but also to grow us up. I pray in Jesus name. Uh, Amen. Amen. Okay. I need a photo up (laughs) to start. Okay, this photo is going to be, when it appears, my family, and you got to look beyond these beautiful people to the butte behind it, the Honda Pilot. This was our family car until just recently, and we really came to love this car. There were a lot of memories packed in this car, a lot of messes packed in this car, thousands of miles, at least three cross-country moves that we made in this car. Our kids named it Black Cat. And we all called it Black Cat because they name everything, and it was so precious to us. And I'm predominantly the one who drove this car. Um, It got us from point A to point B. I was usually in a big hurry with these people, so I didn't really stop to think about, is this vehicle functioning at its optimal potential? I really didn't care. I mean, if we safely got where we were going, that to me was the point of the vehicle. Uh, For most of you who care about cars, you're probably a little disappointed that I did not realize it should not take all my strength and grit to keep this car between two lines on the road. It took Anthony a one time behind the wheel to tell me that we had a major alignment problem with my car. If you let go of the wheel, it just kind of went across two lanes of traffic and you'd probably end up in a ditch if you didn't intervene. It wasn't gradual, guys. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to slowly move to the side. It was like, you let go of the wheel, you're there, right? It was pretty abrupt. Pretty noticeable. I I was working on my strength. Anyway, um, we did. We had an alignment problem in our car. And if you know about alignment problems, you know that they can be kind of disastrous if you just leave them unattended. And when we go to this passage today, it it reminded me of our car because I feel like the Corinthian church they were out of alignment. And probably many people didn't even realize that there was this major problem in how they were functioning. They're just moving through everyday life, doing what they know, getting from point A to point B, very busy. No one has time to stop and think about an alignment. We got things to do. We got places to be. And they're just kind of plowing on. And they're they're not realizing we're really out of alignment with maybe how God intended for us to function inside of the church and inside of the cultural context that he placed us in. And if you guys are like me, you're probably looking at our culture right now and thinking, yeah, we got some alignment issues too. And if you think about it too long, it 
can be pretty discouraging, but I don't think that we get there all of a sudden. I think it's kind of a subtle um, shifting and a following of the roadmap of our culture that leads us to that, and that for many of us, we're really just like a swerve away from a pretty significant disaster. Yeah. Uh, guys, this morning is obviously, it's, it's a little bit different. Uh, usually I stand up here and talk, but you get to both of us up here this morning. Um, but the idea is like, we don't just want to be a couple talking heads here. We don't want to just sit up here and teach and, and you just sit there and just like, okay, whenever they're done, they'll hurry up and finish. Um, the idea that we want this morning to kind of feel like is somewhat of a, of a guided conversation. Um, because this is a really, really difficult passage. Uh, if, you, if you've read ahead, we kind of gave a little bit of a heads up throughout the week just about uh, who's going to be talking this morning, just this passage and inviting you in to pray because we knew just how difficult of a passage this was. And so we've studied this passage before, but probably not as in-depth as we got into it this week. And, and so as we were studying, we, we read some commentators who said, like, per capita, this passage, uh, with the amount of space that it takes on, on this one little page, um, it is one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture because it's so broad and so complex and there's so much that's crammed into it that's really not given any qualification on the terms. It's just kind of thrown in there and then you're to figure out how to uh, apply or, or to live it out. And so as we uh, went through this, we're like, man, how are we going to present this to everybody with somewhat of, of a dogmatic viewpoint? The answer was like, we can't. Um, because there's so many different ways to take this text, we don't, there's no way that we can bring a, a dogmatic viewpoint to uh, the table. We're going to just simply invite you into the process of our conversation that we've been having throughout the week. Um, we're we're going to guide you through what we think the text says, but really we're, we're humbly putting this in, in front of you because we're working through it. Uh, we'll probably even be working through things as we sit here right now uh, and, and start talking. So uh, my mentor, uh, one, one of the guiding principles that, that we're going to use is, is something that my mentor said um, to me over and over and over again. I just recently realized he stole it from D.A. Carson, and so I feel like I can steal it from him and D.A. Carson at the same time. Uh, he said that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. That's a it, lot of words. It is a lot of words. Uh, but what those words simply mean is that context matters, uh, is that you, ha you can't just pluck a passage up out of its context if you want to be able to understand actually what it means. If we don't have the context, we can take any word or any passage and we can make it say whatever we want it to say. I I'm sure you've had conversations with people or heard a pastor or a teacher stand up and talk and, they and they're plucking verses from, from here or there and you listen and you're like, bro, that's not what that means. That's not what that means at all. If you just read the rest of the text, you would understand that what you're saying is just ridiculous right now. So just read what's going on around it. And so context for us is so important. And especially when you come to passages that are really difficult, uh, passages like today, or, or passages where we have these emotionally charged presuppositions that we bring to the text um, from, from, you know, past uh, baggage that we're bringing or just a supposition that, that we bring to the text thinking that we already know what it's going to say because of how we were raised or the context of the family that we came up in. And so we have to make sure that we don't bring those presuppositions to the text, that we've got to let the context kind of drive here uh, as well. It, it's really kind of a, a Bible study principle that we should, uh, I think, always kind of be putting into practice, asking ourselves some of the questions. Uh, like, what does this text mean? When the author writes something, 
He is writing to a particular audience, and there's a reason why he's writing to that audience. He's wanting to address something. In 1 Corinthians, we know that Paul is addressing all kinds of different questions. And so we want to know what does he mean and what is he saying to the people that, that he's talking to. But not only that, we, we want to take it from what it meant then and bring it over into our context now and see what's the overarching principle that we can apply to our, our lives. Uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes that we can make is reading the, the text and, and, and trying to make it say something that it was never meant to say, or, or, try, or trying to read into it and see, this is what I want it to say, where we bring those presuppositions to the text, and we are, we've already concluded, this is what it's going to say, or I'm looking only, not, not to see what God says, but I want to confirm what I already believe is there. Uh, and then the second thing is just to to make it say what is never meant uh, to say. And so in order to understand 1 Corinthians within its context, uh, I think we've got to look at all of 1 Corinthians, but not just all of the, the context of 1 Corinthians, but the context of uh, all of Scripture, uh, where we see God's desire and design for how we experience this ongoing blessing of walking with Him. Um, remember, we're in a series, like we've been kind of bouncing in and out with all the holidays and stuff, but we're in a series in 1 Corinthians called Messy Masterpiece. And what we said in Messy Masterpiece is that God has designed the church. Like, this was his idea. We did not make it up. The, the church is his design. Now, we mess it up. Like, we take that design and we do all kinds of crazy stuff and we get messy while we try to carry this out. But it doesn't make it any less his design. Um, he has good intentions for his uh, design. And, and when we follow his design, we benefit from the blessing of staying with under the covering of his leading and under the covering of uh, his blessing. And so what Paul's doing here in 1 Corinthians, is he is still answering questions. He's been asking, or he's been answering a lot of questions that he's received, and what he's doing now is he's um, answering another question, trying to align the church, or as Ashley kind of talked about with the car, uh, a realignment uh, of the church within the culture that it's set in, so that they can be in the culture, but not be bent to or swayed by the culture, so they can uh, bring Christ and his intent uh, into that community. So in this immediate context, I think one of the questions that Paul is asking here is what should the church look like right now? What should corporate worship, when we gather together, what, how are we supposed to do that? Like if we say, how do we do church? This is what Paul was doing. When we come together, what's corporate worship supposed to look like? Okay, we're going to get into the text so you're not wondering forever <clears throat> what we're talking about here. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2 now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she, could cut, she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels." Sorry. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. 
For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For hair is given to be for her a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Help us, right? Come on, Lord. <laughs> like, there's so much in this passage. This is why this makes it so we've got head coverings, we've got prophesying and praying, we've got male headship, we've got what's head mean, we have um, these, these head coverings. Like, there's just so much that gets wrapped up in this passage, and I think that's why it makes it difficult. So what we want to do is we just want to kind of walk through and, and break it down a little bit. Uh, verse 2 um, I think what Paul's doing here is he's just kind of giving them a pat on the back. He's saying, hey, good job. You followed the traditions that have been handed down to you. Um, you are doing exactly what we've asked you to do. Keep on, keep going. And this is kind of a pat on the back uh, for uh, the church here. But then when you move into verse 3, this is when it begins to get a little bit more hairy for us. Verse 3, he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now, when we hear those words, the head of every man is Christ and the, and, and the head of Christ is God, that's usually not that big of a deal for us, right? Because we can come to grips with the idea that there's some, some level of not only equality within the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, but within that, we, we can see that there's some level of su uh, submission of Christ to the, to the leading of the Father, not, not becoming less equal or, or same, having the same value or character, but having a different submissive role. As we know, he poured himself out in, in Philippians chapter 2 to come to creation, to be salvation for us. So we can come to grips with that, and we can even come to grips with the idea that man is to put ourselves under the headship of Christ. Really not that big of a deal. But when we go in and we read the next line that, that says that women are to be under, the head, under their head, which is the man, they're like, hold up. Like, wait, like, I'm not supposed to be under no man. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not supposed to, like, no man is going to rule or have authority over me. Like, we can come to grips with the rest. Like, this is the passage that we have a hard time with. We're just like, hold up. Because of the, the cultural context that we bring to the table, because the experiences that we bring to the table, the presuppositions that we carry with us uh, that we want the text to say, or presuppositions that we have from our past with this whole idea of, of headship. And it creates a problem for some of us when we read it, particularly some of the ladies who read this because of the, it seems to show some kind of a male authority here. Because when we hear head or headship, what we hear is domineering authority. And if you're old enough, you think of Archie Bunker, right? You think of his leadership. You think of Al Bundy, or today we look and we see the, the, gener the, the degenerated view of male or, or husband or male leadership in the TV shows that we watch or in the news uh, that we read. And you have this authority that's been taken uh, uh, in, in the role of leadership without the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual responsibility that comes along with that leadership. And what's happened is that people have been led poorly which leaves this bad taste for any type of authority in our mouths, but not just any type of authority, but particularly in this context, male authority uh, to go along with that. And so when we read the word head, we have to know what he's saying here in the context. But that makes it difficult because there's two different ways to understand it. Um, the word head, it can mean source or, or origin, 
like the, like the head of a river, uh, the mouth of a river that feeds the streams that will flow out of that, or it can mean the authority over something or the authority of something. And each one of these definitions or these ideas, they have their merit, but each one of them have their problems as well. And so as we look at it, context has got to be part of the equation in how we are to under, uh, understand this. And so what we want to do is we look at the biblical context and, and go back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so if you can either think there or even turn in your Bibles uh, back to Genesis chapter 1, uh, that's where we're heading here. In Genesis 1, God creates uh, the man and the woman in his image, right? And by that statement uh, alone, both men and women carry the same equal value and they carry the same equal weight. And so nothing that gets said after these words uh, that God creates them in his image and the image of God, he created them, and nothing that happens after this is going to undo the value and the worth of both man and woman in any context that they find themselves. Sin isn't going to take away that value. Depravity isn't going to take away that value. They're going to carry that with them wherever and whenever uh, they go. Both men and women are going to continue to be co-image bearers uh, of God. And when you get to Genesis chapter 2, you're going to see uh, the complete picture of what creation actually uh, looks like. Uh, God creates Adam out of the dust of the ground, like literally reaches down, grabs some dust, forms man, breathes life into him, and places him right in the middle of the garden. And right here in the middle of the garden, you got the, the prototypical man, right? And in my, eye, in my eyes, you got this dude who's like jacked out, like he's got a strong jawline, he's buff, right? He, he's he's uh, the, the prototypical man, looking like Aaron out in the middle of the garden, right? There, there he is. He's standing there. But here's what, here's what happens. God has said up to this point, everything is good. But when he looks at Adam, he sees that there, there's something wrong here. Not that there's something with the creation that God has made, but he looks at Adam and he says, this bro, like, he needs some help. He's not going to make it on his own. He needs somebody to come alongside of him. And that statement, it, it should be so humbling for us men in the room who have said that women are inferior to us or that we are superior, uh, that they are completely subordinate to us. It should be so humbling that God would look at the prototypical male and say, this brother needs help. He's not going to make it on his own. And, and so God says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, then the Lord God said that it's not good that man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. And so what God does is he puts Adam in this momentary coma, right? puts him to sleep, reaches down into his side, and somehow he pulls woman and, and creates woman out of the side of this man. And Scripture says, in order to be his helper. I hate the English language. <laughs> the English language really botches this for us because I think when, in our context, when we hear helper, we kind of cringe, like, that kind of sounds like little assistant or like we're inferior or there's an authority over us. And that's really so far from what God's heart and intention was. When you go back to the Hebrew, the word there for helper is azar. And there's no suggestion of a inferiority or subordination there. The same exact word actually is used for God himself in other parts of Scripture. The one who can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. The, the rescuer, the one that meets our deepest need. And so in essence, he's saying, I'm going to give you someone that is going to be able to see things about yourself that you can't even recognize and breathe life into that space and encourage you and kind of polish out those edges. Um, 
the role of helper is indispensable. And I think there's a companionship to this and a purpose in this design that is brilliant and is beautiful. And I'm sad that our English language kind of robs us of some of that full meaning. It was logical from this meaning that, that a woman would come alongside and help mm -hmm. and kind of fill in the gaps, if you will, for her spouse. And then also that the man would come alongside his wife and do some of the same. That there was an order to creation where there would be this mutual companionship between both. And that if we functioned with this order, if we were both following this order well, we'd be under the umbrella of God's blessing and his covering, both parties mutually growing and being encouraged to, to live in the design that God had for them. And, and some, somebody might say and try to argue like, yeah, th there's clear role distinctions in, in, male, in, in male and female and in, in the roles that they are going to play. But those roles didn't come until after sin entered into the garden. Before that, it was man could do anything that woman could do. Woman could do anything that man could do. There, there was no distinction. The lines were blurred between uh, the man and the woman. But all you have to do is, is go back and look what happens after the sin, right? Just functionality, what happens? God doesn't go to Adam, or he doesn't go to Eve and be like, hey, Eve, look, you messed up. No, he goes straight to Adam. And he, and he says, what's happened here? Like, what happened? And so even before we have these distinct roles that are given after the fall, where, where a woman is going to give birth and there's going to be pain and labor, congratulations, um, and like men are going to work and there's going to be the sweat <laughs> of the brow, these, these distinctions where we start to kind of the, the flesh out what the male-female role is supposed to look like, God was already holding Adam accountable, responsible for what happens in the garden. So there's already clear distinctions of what headship is going uh, to, to look like. And so when Paul writes these words in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 11, he's calling the church to remember that God's design is good and that God's order is good. This was his gift of, of grace. There was this mutuality in equality. and equality. And here's the thing. Equality doesn't always mean sameness. Essential equality doesn't mean that you do the exact same things. It just means essentially as a human being who is created in the image of God, we both share that same image. And so you can have distinction in roles without having to feel like there's got to be this sameness and losing something by having a distinction in the role as we walk alongside of one another, filling in the gaps uh, when we need a little bit of help. Like, like for me, man, I, I, can, I can be somewhat easily discouraged. Like it's a little bit painful uh, for me to admit that, but I can be uh, discouraged from time to time. But Ashley, like she is a fantastic encourager. And so where I'm weak, she's able to come alongside and, and prop that up. And that is God's beautiful design, where we are to fill in the gaps of one another. Now, I have um, uh, the ability, uh, I'm going to call it ability, not a flaw. <laughs> I have the ability to shoot straight with people, and, and, and I can come across fairly gruff from, from time That's to time. pretty blunt. And, and she, <laughs> she has the ability to come around and soften off the edges and say, you know what, what he really meant to say was... And just really kind of get me out of some trouble every once in a while. She fills in the gaps there. This was God's good design. It, 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 wasn't, uh, it wasn't something to be trifled with or painful uh, to bear uh, up under at this time. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So back to those two definitions of head. I think based on other parts of Scripture, we have kind of come to the conclusion that there is an authority aspect to the way that the word is used here based on how we see Christ and God the Father's relationship working. But 
I, I really highlight that word relationship because there's communication and there's yielding in that. And I think it's really important as we continue on um, through these verses just to pay attention to what Paul says and what he doesn't say. <laughs> I have heard this passage in this text mistaught so many times. Um, and what Paul is not saying here and doesn't say is that woman is inferior, she should only be in the kitchen, she should only be having babies, she um, can't lead in business, she can't be a mathematician, she can't be a CEO, she can't do all of these wonderful things outside of her home. That is not here. It also doesn't say that every woman should always be subject to man everywhere. That is not what it says either. This was, again, just to help give order inside the church and inside the family for things to function well. And as we move through the passage, you're going to see there's actually more freedom for women and all people under God's design than, than chains or, or bondage. So we'll move into that. Anyway, the distinctions were not to be blurred. So there's a few eternal principles in this passage like the order of creation, it doesn't change. God made Adam first, then came woman. There's God the Father, there's God the Son. There's order that doesn't change. But the outworking or the function of what this looks like changes. It has been, you know, how many centuries since this was written? The order of how that functions today looks very different than how it functioned in their culture. And it looks very different in the church than how it looked in the church there. And so we want to just make sure that we, as we go through it, we kind of are differentiating what are like the eternal principles that are true about who God is and what, he, what and who he says we are. And then what are the functional things that aren't mandates here? They were just cultural things yeah. that were happening. Within so, its context. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but we, I think we've got to be honest here, though. Um, does this order go wrong sometimes? Yes. I, I would say, yes, it does. Have men completely kind of botched this and abused our role as head and, and been abusive in this leadership? I think absolutely uh, we have. But does that mean that God's design is somehow faulty or not good? No, it doesn't mean that his design is faulty at all. It just means that we have acted like idiots from time to time and that we haven't followed through with his design. We've, we've just botched it and we've done our own thing and, and done it the way that we want to do it from uh, time to time. Uh, and, and so, like we've said about the church, that this is messy. Even in leadership, like this is messy, fleshing this out. But God has chosen to use this design of headship, with not only within the Godhead, but also within the church to communicate truths about himself but also to communicate how it's going to best function in order inside of the church as well. It communicates so much. And so, guys, I just want to talk to you real quick. When, when we fail to follow through on God's design, listen to me. Like, when we fail to follow through on God's design, we're not only hurting ourselves, but we're hurting the person that God has given to be a helper or the ladies around us that God has given to, to be a, a helper. Uh, the church fails or the church falters because we're not stepping in and, and, and leading according to the way that God has designed as well. And we miss out on, on experience the, the covering of God's blessing. We, we miss out on walking in lockstep with him and experiencing the blessing that he intended out of this, this headship. And, and so that's exactly the thing that Paul is trying to go after in 1 Corinthians uh, all of the book, but it's specifically here in chapter 11, that he doesn't want the church to rebel against God's design. Because when you rebel, 
you miss the experience of his blessing. And there's a faltering that happens. And so if we want peace in our home, if we want peace around us, then guys, what we need to do is we need to step into the role that God has given us to lead. And that is to start with being under his headship, right? To be under the headship of Christ, leading uh, in, by his authority, growing up into maturity so that we might be able to lead in the spaces that God has given us to lead well. Not to domineer in authoritative roles, but to follow under his, uh, his leading as we lean into Christ. And so verse 4, he says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. And so, babe, I want to give you that one, uh, since we're talking about ladies' hair and covering, and I'm just going to ask you the question. Um, why is not wearing a head covering disgraceful uh, or cutting your hair disgraceful? Um, it, is it not that women can't go to a hair salon and get their hair cut any way that they want to? No, no, it's not. Um, I, again, as I mentioned, I have never heard this passage taught with context brought to the table. So that tells you whatever it may about my church background. But I think it's really important to look at the context and to understand historically what was going on, which gets me really excited. The Corinthian women had found freedom in Christ that they had never experienced before. And they were starting to blur the lines between what the culture was saying was okay for them and what was okay inside the church. And rather than using this newfound freedom that they had in Christ to point people to the source of that, to Christ, they were kind of using using it to point to themselves in their own glory. Like, look at me, I'm liberated, I'm free. Um, Galatians 3.28 talked about when people put on Christ, they were no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. Um, and what's amazing is, you know, a lot of times I feel like today in our culture, people want to say, oh, the church is so archaic, they're so old, and, you know, Jesus didn't value women. And if you have feelings like that, you need to dig into the Gospels, because that's not how Christ lived. He was so progressive. And changing the culture around him for the elevation and respect of, of women, honestly. He ran to them. Um, they're some of the first people he saw when he rose from the dead. He spoke their name. He touched them with gentleness. He changed their lives. And um, so I just want you to imagine these women, for the first time ever, have felt valuable, they felt important, and they have freedom now to pray and teach inside the church. And they're kind of going wild with this freedom. And unfortunately, they're not using that freedom to look distinctly different from the culture around them. Their hearts get a little misaligned in this, and they're kind of flaunting it. You know, look at me over here in the church. I'm liberated, and, and I'm free in Christ. And the focus became more on that liberation and their rights than on Christ. And anytime those lines get blurred, 
there's trouble and, and the church isn't getting to represent to the world what it's supposed to be showing the culture around us about who he is. And so that's what was going on here. The, one of the biggest problems that was happening in the Corinthian church, it's really less, I mean, I know it is about head coverings, but it's really less about that and more about what was happening in these women's hearts. They were coming to these gatherings. Um, there's no other place in the Roman Empire that they are this free and they're just, they're just misusing it. And um, again, like I said, a lot of times people feel like Christianity is archaic, but I want you to hear in the context of what was happening here that Christianity is a gospel of freedom in Christ. Mm. And when Christ came, it wasn't only for men. It wasn't only for women. It didn't matter what your race or gender was. It didn't matter if you were one of the elite, if you were a slave. Um, there was no room for male chauvinism or female feminism. There was equality, complete equality at the foot of the cross. And there was an opportunity for this mutual partnership and this beautiful thing to be happening inside of the church. And instead of allowing God's glory to shine in that design, um, these women were kind of doing the things that the women of the culture then were doing. So again, Forget about the hair, okay? The hair, <laughs> this is not to be misused. Like, women should not dye their hair. Women should have their head covered. Women should only have long hair. It's the most beautiful. Don't ever cut it short. Don't shave your head. You're missing the point if, if you just hyper-focus in on that. But I do want you to understand that the reason this was such an issue in this context is because the only women who were going out in public with their head uncovered at this time were temple prostitutes or women who by Hebrew law had stepped outside of their marriage, they were being unfaithful to their husband, and as a punishment, their hair was either cut or their heads were shaven. That was Hebrew law, or that is what was happening. No one ever shared this with me, so it's a lot easier to lose your, your grounding, I guess, in this if you don't understand what was happening in the culture. So. In this day, in this time, if you were a respectable woman, if you were married, if you were good standing in the community, you covered your head when you went out in public. You just put that shawl on and you went. And that was just a physical symbol that kind of shared with people, I, I am pure, I am faithful to my husband, I'm, I'm trying to be an upstanding citizen. It was just an outer expression of their heart and their position and where they were. And so when these women in the church were like, I'm free, and they're running around, they're kind of looking like the world. And in that day, if you saw a woman with short hair or you saw a woman who was uncovered, you could tell by her outward appearance part of her story. You knew what she was offering. You knew what she was passionate about. You knew kind of what she was living for. So when Paul is asking the women, like, please just cover your head, he's saying, please put on the symbol of what's happened in your heart. Like, show people who you're passionate about, that it's not about your own personal liberation or your freedoms. It's really this position of your heart saying, I'm yielded to Christ. And so I think the challenge when, when I was going through this, it's like so hard to lose, you know, not to lose what the truths are that can be taken. And I just think the challenge for women now, this has nothing to do, our haircuts now are fashionable. That's what hair is now. This 
then was more of a statement about your identity and what you were living for. And so I think the question we need to be asking is, if our heart is yielded to Christ, are we walking in a way where we're like, you're what I'm passionate about, and that's what I want everyone to know me by. And then secondly, if we have an attitude towards authority that's reflecting God's image, um, are we able to respect when respect needs to be shown? Um, or do we have a general position of rebellion in our spirit just about life in general? Because we want how we're living to, to be pointing people to Christ. And that was what Paul was crying for. We want the church to look different than the culture. We want people to be able to see that Jesus has set you free and, and what that's for. Okay, I just want men to know they're not off the hook. So we're going to go to verse 7. For man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Whew, all right. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. All right, so we're going to turn up the speed if it, we haven't already been moving fast uh, enough because uh, my watch up here, it just buzzed on me telling me that we should be done, uh, but we're not done yet. Uh, so I'm going to speed up here, okay? Uh, so just as a reminder from this context here um, that th this, we're talking about the gathering of the church. It's the assembly of the church and what's being communicated about Jesus and his church to the community here. And so he mentions both men and women again, and uh, he says, guys, don't put on a head covering. He tells, the, or he tells the ladies to put one on, and he tells the guys, like, don't put a covering on your head. And going back to the context, mm -hmm. um, context is, is king here for us. We need to understand what's going on. Um, God had pulled these men and women out of a context of paganism. He'd brought them into the family of God, creating something brand new, something they hadn't experienced up to this point. And so what the men were fighting against was that the priests of these pagan temples, they would go into those temples, they would pull their, their toga or their uh, robe up over their heads as a symbol of authority over them as they walked inside the temple, that they were under the authority of those gods whom they were going there to serve. And so Paul says, guys, don't do what these pagan priests are doing. Don't pull the robe up over your head. Leave it down because that communicates something to the, to, to the community around you. What design and what order you're going to live under. Just like he tells the women, hey, don't wear or put a head covering on because that communicates something to the culture of what you're going to live for and the design that you're going uh, to, to live under as well. You're going to choose to live under the covering of God's blessing, not under the covering of, of anything else. And so don't just do whatever everybody else is doing. We talked about monkey see, monkey do last week. He says, don't just do what everybody else is doing. Follow the design that, that God has given you to follow right now. How you live should be pointing back to him. And so we're going to hit this angel stuff real quick. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do it quickly because the honest answer is we have no idea what Paul is saying here. When he tells the ladies to cover up their heads for the sake of the angels, we really don't know. Um, but somehow, some way that these angels can be encouraged um, by those who are living on earth. That the angels are God's messengers, but not only on they are his messengers, but they are his, uh, his servants that he sends to watch over and to care for humanity as well. And so these angels have the ability to see what's going on on earth. And they have the ability to be able to see if somebody is openly uh, following the Lord 
or if they're rebelling against the Lord uh, as well. I don't understand it. I don't know how that works, but we have the ability to encourage uh, angels here. And scripture says that one day that we are going to judge angels. Now think about this. If angels have the ability to see whether we are walking in step with God's design or openly rebelling against God, and, 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 and they see if we're rebelling against him, like those are the jokers that are going to be judging us? Yeah, you saved them, and yeah, they're in Christ, but look how they're living. They're going to be judging us. We have the ability to encourage them by how we live and follow in God's design right now. I don't get it. I don't understand it, but I think that's what's happening here. And so this stresses that there are things that God has set up that we don't fully understand, but even if we don't fully understand it, we walk according to his, his, uh, his design and we experience his blessing. And when we don't, there's eternal weight that we experience now, but that will, that will play itself out in heaven in ways that we can't understand as well. And so Paul says here at the end of this section, he says, guys, ladies, we need each other in the church. There's a mutuality uh, amongst us. He says in verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So what he's saying is, dudes, if you live in this camp where you think that you are so far superior to women and you use creation as your example that you were created first and because you were created first that, that somehow puts you in some kind of a level where you are above equality with the women, he says, let, let me help you understand this. Yeah, you might have been created first, but ever since then, it takes a woman to bring about a man. Like you can't live without women. So he puts this in context for them and helps them understand there's this mutual um, edification amongst the two, but there's this mutual in interdependence that has to happen between male and female as well. And so he's, he's, he's not just propping up men and saying, you do have the authority within the Godhead. And, and he's not about just female liberation and saying, women, now you can just go do everything that a man can do. It's looking at the order that God's established seeing that both men and women are equally um, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And if you are fully indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, that each and every man and woman then has the Spirit of God living inside of them. And it doesn't matter what their gender, it doesn't matter if they're male, it doesn't matter if they're female, they have the Holy Spirit of God and they are gifted with spiritual gifts to use. And so if men have gifts, use them. If women have gifts, use them. In the order of creation that God has designed, but use your gifts fully. We're going to see more about this when we get to chapter 12 in uh, just a couple of weeks. Uh, but verse 13 says, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a man has long hair, woman. or if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anybody is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. And so the last argument that Paul makes here is that we really don't have an argument. He says, don't let all this head covering stuff, don't let it come between us. Don't let it cause division. It's not about the head covering. It's really not about the head covering. It's about uh, the heart. Are you going to choose to live under the covering of God's blessing? Are you going to choose to willingly um, buck against the design that God's put in place? Are you going to choose to, to rebel against God's blessing and walk out from under it? And, and what I want you to know, that in no way does Paul ever say, will he ever say, that there is an equality difference or a value difference between men and women. That there's a, there's a 
timeless principle here that we shouldn't try to blur the distinctions between the genders. Like it's clear that, that men are to be men and women are to be women and not to want each other's role, to embrace and celebrate masculinity, to embrace and to celebrate femininity, and not to try to want what the other has, but to live within God's design and not to blur those lines. Because when we begin to blur those lines, as we're seeing all around us, right? We're not going to do a cultural discourse right now, but we're seeing this all around us. And when those lines begin to get, begin to get blurred, a, a misalignment happens and we are heading to a ditch and we're heading to a ditch fast. And, and it's going to take a strong uh, uh, realignment in order to get the thing back on track. Well, one of the things that I heard this week um, from a guy named Matt Chandler, one of my favorites to listen to, is that the conclusion that he was drawing from this passage is that how we look at men, how we look at women, is not to be in a subordinate role, one, one way or the other here, is to look at our brothers and sisters in Christ as siblings, not as subordinates. As, Ashley's my wife, but she's my sister in Christ. I'm her husband, I'm, but I'm her brother in Christ. And so I'm not going to live in a way that, that lords over her, and she's not going to live in a way that she's going to try to lord over me. But we are going to live as husband and wife, but as siblings in Christ to, uh, together. Um, I, I, we, we were sitting, um, I, won't, I won't name the place, uh, but we were sitting down at, at a table. And a group of pastors, we were, we were meeting with a group of pastors, but I was sitting with, with Ashley uh, at the time. We were having a meeting with some other folks, and uh, and so this group of pastors come in, and uh, a lot of the pastors uh, say hello. And uh, this one particular pastor, who uh, I know to be somewhat gruff and to be a bit chauvinistic in this area, he doesn't even look at my wife. He shakes every man's hand around me, but doesn't even look at her. And I, like, my spirit rose up inside of me, and, and like, I, I wanted to like deck the guy. Like, this was my brother in Christ, but, but how he was treating another, not just my wife, but treating another woman. In whom that the way that he treats should be saying something about who God is. Like, I wanted to deck the guy. And, and Ashley, when we went home, she's like, hey, did, you, did you see what happened at the table? She didn't have to explain it. I was like, yeah, I saw what happened. Like, that, that, should, that shouldn't be happening. I was uh, quiet there. I was not quiet at home about it. But, I, I mean, it, it actually, besides being really rude... <laughs> It really hurt my heart because I thought, how is this guy claiming to be in ministry and showing people the love of God and he can't look at a woman? Like, how are women feeling loved in his church? How are women seeing Christ when that is kind of the authority, you know, teaching them? So you're, you're missing a lot there. But. And so how, how does this play out in our house? Mm-hmm. Guys, there, there's no task above you or below you. And ladies, there's no task above you or below you. Our, our homes and our church, the corporate value that we have here, it, it's, it's not to put women in their place or to put men in their place, for women to rise up and for men to be subject or men to rise up and to subject women. Like, that's not who we are. And so how we play this out, like, guys, change the diapers. Wash the <laughs> dishes. I mean, I've been changing diapers for 11 years, guys. 11 years I've been changing diapers. I might complain about it, but for 11 years, I've been, I've been changing diapers, <laughs> washing dishes, pay the bills. Like we, we, we have certain giftings, but our spouse is able to fill in the gap um, where we might be lacking. And how does this play out in our church? No task, men, is above you. No task is below you. No area of service is above you. No area of service is below you. We, we share a complementarian view uh, amongst our eldership. 
uh, here. And, and so that, that means that we're, that we're going to reserve the role of elder for, for male headship, believing that that's in line with what, what the Scripture teaches us here, so we're not going to back away from that. But as men and women are both gifted equally with the Holy Spirit of God, we're going to say we're going to live as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're, we're, we're going to allow women to, to teach. We're going to allow women. We're going to encourage our women to, to lead. We're going to encourage our women. But we're also not going to say men step aside. We're, we're going to say men lead. Men come alongside. Where you are gifted, lead. Where you are not gifted, let somebody else lead. And so we're going to live as siblings and not as, as subordinates. You got anything else, babe? Mm-hmm. All right, then let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much um, for this ridiculously hard passage. Um, and I am fully aware that um, this is hard. We, we could have spent three more hours up here or longer to try to dissect every word that is valuable um, here. Um, but we don't have that time. And, and, and I'm also aware, God, that um, we have people in the room that are all over the map on this. And there are some people who are cheering right now. And there are some people who are ready to write me an email. Um, but Father, I pray that in humility that we would approach your word and try to see it in its context and try to see how it plays out. And we'll walk alongside and step with you and not buck against your design, but try to figure out how we live in it, in our context, in our culture right now. Because all we want to do is we want to experience the covering of your blessing. We want to walk and step with you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys.